Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. I want to share something that I know, perhaps more than most here, that really touches my heart. When these young ladies sing, it, uh, it means something special to me because this young lady in the white is Sasha Ivanova. She's 22. This is Katerina Yeremenko. She's 18. And they're from Kharkiv, Ukraine. And I know that when the war started, Sasha was, it was just her and her mom. Her dad died a few years ago. And the Hatsinkos, another family that are here, they, they went and got them and they fled when the bombs were going off in their city, Kharkiv. And the Yerminkos, that was uh, Katerina's dad back there playing, playing guitar. I've seen pictures of their home. It's been destroyed. So when you know their background and know what they've been through and that they sing such, with such hearts of worship, to me it um, just means a good bit more. So I appreciate you very much. Actually, I'm thankful and honored that we as a church would take on the responsibility to help as many Ukrainians as we, as we have. It's um, when Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these. Well, before the war started, they may not have been the least of these. But when it happened, suddenly they're in that position. And it's a good thing that you've rallied around to help them. We're still in this series entitled Confronting the Chaos. And we're going to be for quite a while. We're slowly building toward discussing specific things. But at this point, we're still working on the foundation. And where we were in the week before Easter, as well as last weekend, is talking about the idea of truth and trusting the scriptures and how much of the modern liberal church has deconstructed the scripture, does not believe in anything supernatural, does not believe in absolute truth, believes that somehow modern man must give us understanding about God, whereas God himself has preserved for us supernaturally the truth. And I went through a long discussion about this last week, so I'm not gonna go through all of it, but I'm just gonna highlight, first of all, that the fact is the scripture says itself that it's God-breathed, that it's useful for instruction and teaching and righteousness and so forth. And we believe that as a church. We believe as a church that the scripture is true, it's vibrant, it's real, it's inspired by the spirit. And we as a church always teach from there and stand there. And the reason I've emphasized this so much in this series is because moving forward, you must believe the scripture is true in order to address issues. If you do not, I don't know where you stand and how you come to conclusions other than by humanistic ideas. And so we talked last week about how can we rely upon the Old Testament. Well, first of all, it was given to the Jewish people. They took extraordinary care in maintaining it, primarily the priests and the scribes, that they took meticulous detail in all of the, the retranscribing of the Scripture. And archaeology has affirmed the marvelous job that they have done. 
That is, there are countless archaeological finds that have confirmed the validity and reliability of the Old Testament scriptures. Then the Old Testament is historically accurate. It is a historical document telling us about real events that occurred. And there have been times when the historicity of the Old Testament was brought into question by scholars, and then something would be discovered that would prove, in fact, the Bible always speaks truth about events that really occurred. And then there are other reasons that we can rely upon the Old Testament. That is, first of all, that there are many, many fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Now, those who don't believe in the supernatural believe that a lot of the things that are fulfilled prophecies were written in after the fact, but that's simply not true. In fact, look at Psalm 22 and what we talked about on Easter, that it portrays or foretells the very events of the cross. That wasn't written in after the fact. The the psalm was written a long, long time before the time of the crucifixion. So the prophecies themselves affirm that God's spirit was the writer speaking through the prophets. He carried them along and that then he confirmed what he foretold. Then there are many quotations from the Old Testament by the New Testament authors, including the statements of Jesus himself. He often quoted from the Old Testament. And so the the New Testament writers were declaring the validity of the scripture. In fact, whenever they would speak about the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. They're not talking about the New Testament. When Jesus himself would say something about the scriptures say, he's talking about the Old Testament. And of course, he validated it, declared it to be true. And you see, everything about that indicates to you and I that you and I can rely upon the foundation of the Old Testament. There are too many people in the modern church wanting to dismiss the Old Testament and saying that, well, the God of the Old Testament's an angry God of wrath and the God of the New Testament's a God of love, and we just focus upon that. Actually, God is a God of perfect love, but he's also a God of perfect righteousness. And out of his righteousness flows justice, and his justice then yields his wrath. You see, there's, it's an interesting thing that people don't like the wrath of God if they're concerned it might be faced against them, but they like the wrath of God if it's against somebody else. It's true. See, we want God to judge that which is wrong and evil in somebody else. We just don't want it to come our way. But really, you cannot understand who Jesus really is apart from the Old Testament. I believe the entire Old Testament is pointing toward Christ, everything about it. And so you understand the law and understand humans could not fulfill the law and how far we fall short of the glory and righteousness of God. Then you understand the need for a Messiah. You understand the need for forgiveness. You understand who Christ is. And then take, for example, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is all about declaring to the Jewish people who understood the Old Testament that this is the Messiah, this Christ, the risen one. And then, of course, we talked about the New Testament too. I won't go through all of that, but the primary thing I talked about is how much validity and resource support there is for the New Testament. And I gave this list of things that are accepted in literature as ancient writings, such as Plato's writings or Aristotle's writings, And the time periods in which they were written were very old, not as old as parts of the Old Testament, but that the earliest known copies exist 
hundreds of years later. In other words, the time span between when they're written and when we have a copy that's dated is, in this case, 1,200 years, 1,400 for Aristotle's work. Yet in a, in a university, in literature, those things are accepted as, as the writings of these people. But look at the New Testament. It was written approximately between 49 and 96 A.D., keeping in mind that Christ died in 33 AD, the writers were writing during their lifetime about what they experienced. John was the one who lived the longest. That's, he's the one who wrote the oldest part, the Revelation. And you see, the earliest written copy that we know of is at 130 AD, only 35 years after the time of writing. There are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts that support the New Testament. There's no other document with as much support as the, as the New Testament. You realize in the history of the world, there's no other book that has sold near what the Bible itself has. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that we even date our calendars based on the time before Christ came and the time after Christ came. It's the sovereign hand of God, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit who inspired people to write, who preserved the scriptures, who has recorded them for us today and who brings them to life when we read them. When you study the scripture, when you, whether we're teaching here or you read on your own, whatever it is, if you listen to the scripture, it's the Holy Spirit who brings it to life and gives it life in you. He's imparting life to you through the truth of the scripture. And so see, the reason we focused on this so much right now is because as we're moving forward, dealing with difficult issues in society, we're gonna deal with them from the standpoint of what does the scripture teach is true? And we're gonna stand on truth. Whereas much of the church and certainly most of the culture has abandoned truth. Now what I wanna talk about, well, let me mention this part before I go on. The last thing I talked about last week was about different versions of the Bible. If you send me back there, Alicia, there it is. And that is, you can rely upon modern versions that translate into any language, into English, whatever, because remember, none of us are reading an original language if we're reading English because it's in Greek and Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. But there are, there are reliable translations, and I like to point out the NASB is the best word-for-word -word translation. Now, it's not the easiest to read. It's a little choppy, but it's the best word-for-word -word translation. The English Standard Bible is a good translation. The New King James is a good translation. The King James itself is not a bad translation. It's just harder to read. The Christian Standard Bible is still a good translation, but the ones I have in yellow I have real concerns about. I can no longer recommend the NIV. If you have an NIV before 1984, it's a great translation. But since then, they've forced in gender-neutral language where it was unnecessary, and there's ideology that's been forced in that you can't trust it. And of course, I, you gotta look at paraphrase Bibles as commentaries, not really translations, even though there may be some translation attempt. They're primarily commentaries. But if you're studying for doctrines, use a Bible that is a word-for-word -word translation. If you're reading just to read, then read something that's a little easier, maybe like the, the Christian Standard Bible. I was thinking about this. It's not intentional, but I probably read about four different versions any given week. I real, I real still use the old NIV the, before 1984. I read the NASB. I read the ESV some of the time. And then occasionally I like to read the New King James. 
And so, and if I'm really looking at a passage and I'm not so sure about it, I'll read it from several different versions and then go back and try to figure out what does the Hebrew word mean or what does the Greek word mean or something like that. Try to really understand. But if you're studying for doctrine, we'll read the NASB. Now, where I want to go this week is entitled The God of Today, and it's intentionally a G that is not capitalized because I'm not talking about the one true God, Jehovah God. I'm talking about the God that the world has fashioned, that we have created, whether we call it a God or not. Now, let me remind you in talking about this series that I've said there is a breakdown in society. And really, at the foundation, the, the breakdown comes by denying that God is real, denying that he has created, denying that there is eternal truth, and denying moral absolutes. That all of those things are real. You cannot really abandon them. You can try, but they permeate the world. Yet our culture has tried to live without them. And there are many consequences to that. That is, any culture, whatever values it adopts, whatever principles it stands upon, those things have ramifications for the people of that culture. And they have ramifications for how we identify who we are as a people, how we go about living, what we find as meaningful and purposeful. Now, if you were to ask me personally something about my own identity, well, before I was a Christian, I would have given you statements about where I was born, who my parents were, my family, things like that. After I became a Christian, what I would put at the top of the list is I'm crucified with Christ, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's my identity. But really, if you think about it, for all of us, our identity is shaped by many things, and there are many different facets to it. Now, you may have never thought about it, but if I were to ask you to write a 20-page essay on your identity, what would you write? Now, before I know many of you, before you wrote a thing, the first question you would ask would be what? Single space or double space? <laughs> I mean, students always want to know, what is the minimum I can get by with, right? But no, if you were, to add, you were to write a 20-page single-space document on your identity, what would you write? What defines you? Who are you? Well, I would start with my birth certificate that I was born in a small town in Virginia. My parents both of English, Scottish, Irish descent. So much of my identity is wrapped up in that background. That I was born and on my birth certificate, I haven't looked at it recently. It probably says, of course, now my birth certificate was not written with, in modern technology. It was on parchment. <laughs> See, some people got that right off. Some of you will laugh about that at lunch, parchment. But anyway, <laughs> it's old. But it probably says on there that I'm Caucasian, 
that I'm a boy. Whereas today, people want things like that left off of their birth certificate. I was born in this little town. Now, my first real identity was shaped by what? And it was for most of you. The family in which I was born. And in fact, we'd learn a huge percentage of what we're going to learn in life in the first five years of life. And much of your identity was shaped in that time period. You were accepted or rejected. You were loved or perhaps not. You came to understand some good things about life, maybe some not so good things. You began to accept what was a good way to live, such as telling the truth and not stealing and things like that. If you were a five-year-old kid and you stole something from the local market, your parents more than likely disciplined you for that. You see, in that occurring, that influenced your identity. You realized that truthfulness is important. Now, not all of the culture today would do that, but I'm talking about some time ago. Then your identity was shaped by the people around you, the people you went to school with. You began to think of yourself in a certain way. You may, you may have began to stand upon the things where you were successful and that became part of your identity. Maybe you were really good at math or something like that and you've always thought of yourself that way. Or maybe you weren't so good in some things and that started to become part of your identity too. I think of some of the people that I went to school with, I'm talking grade school, middle school, things like that, that other students ridiculed them terribly. And it must have become part of their identity. After I became a Christian, many years after I became a Christian, for some reason I thought about this young lady, who of course at that time by then would have been an adult, but that I went to school with who always came to school in tattered clothes. She was dirty. She was from a family that had very little. Now, what do you think the other students did? You think they rallied around her, encouraged her, supported her? No, they treated her awful. And I don't remember specific things that I did, but I probably did something too that spoke wrong or treated her poorly. Do you realize that would have become part of her identity? How she thought of herself, how she perceived herself. When I thought about that many years after becoming a Christian, I prayed for her a lot. I hope she lives in a very, very wealthy place today. Who knows where she is? I don't know. But you see, things like that become part of our identity as we're growing up. Education will influence you about your identity. Your experiences affect your identity. In fact, I was talking with Sasha here recently a good bit. And the experience that she's had here as a very young girl is going to affect how she thinks of herself. But we're talking about how her faith is deep, it's real. How God is redeeming what is a terrible situation and God's bringing good out of it. See, her identity's not gonna be marred and ruined. What's gonna happen is her faith in the living God is growing through a very, very difficult time. But what else has shaped your identity? You see, your culture has, whether you realize it or not. 
Many of you might say, well, I'm an American. Many of you are like our veterans. Many of you are proud patriots. That's shaped your identity. Whether you realize it or not, some of these things that have collapsed, they shaped your identity. For example, the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law has shaped the identity of most people in this culture for many generations, even though today its influence is far less. Truth has shaped your identity in many ways. What you believed to be true and what you thought was false. Most of you didn't grow up in a time where people argue there is no truth. You had a sense of morality. If you came to know Christ early in your life, then you had a, a reasonable fear of God. In other words, you wanted to somehow submit to him and honor him. See, a lot of things have shaped your identity, but here's where we are as a culture today. Many of the things that would positively influence the identity of a person have broken down. Do you realize that the, the first and foremost place where you gain identity is in your family? This is the way God has created it. In fact, think of the, the people of Israel. You see, in, in Old Testament Israel, the way you identified yourself was by your family name. You were of the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah or something like that. You were identified by your family, your large family. Or even I was talking with um, one of the Ukrainians here, and I had to work to pronounce his name, and I don't get it fully correct, but it's Stanislav Olegovich Kolmohorov, or Kolmogorov, depending on how you pronounce one letter. And what he told me about the middle part, Olegovich, it means son of Oleg. His father's name is Oleg. And see, part of his identity is son of Oleg. He said when he went to school, in fact, you would, he would be referred to as Stanislav Olegovich. In school, he's the son of. You see, that's part of his identity. And throughout much of history, that's how your identity would have been formed, first by your family. In this culture, much of your identity would have been formed by the church up until very recently. You see, the vast majority of people in this country for most of its existence have been Christian people influenced by the church. It would have had a strong influence upon you. For some people, that's still true. My wife grew up Catholic. She went to private Catholic school all the way through the 12th grade. How much do you think Catholicism had an influence upon her identity? Well, it's huge. You see, the church would have had a huge influence upon how you thought of yourself. But think of many, many young people in the culture today where families are fractured and broken, where their identity is probably not very influenced there. Think of many young people where they have no experience, no exposure to the church. I remember a student I had many, many years ago who I gave a Bible to this young lady and at Christmas time she told me for the first time in my life I understand what Christmas is about. She came from a family where there was no influence whatsoever from the church. And you see, much of what would have influenced your identity historically has broken down so that now people seek to find an identity in different ways. And that's what I primarily want to talk about in this teaching. Because what we have done is created a focus upon yourself as the primary part of life. 
You see, for most people, historically, your identity would have been connected to your tribe or to your family, to your church, to your community. But now we've disconnected largely from those things and said that your identity is all about you. And that's why I entitled this part, The Radical Self. In Ezekiel, it says that the word came to the prophet Ezekiel. It said, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your heart, you say that you are a God. That I, that the king of Tyre, that he sits, come back here. That he sits on the throne of God in the heart of the seas, but you are a man, not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Here's what happens. If you take away all of the influences of society that help you build a healthy identity, all you're left with is for you to discover independently by yourself what matters, if anything, and to find your identity within yourself. In fact, whether you realize it or not, much of what culture is doing today is intentionally trying to deconstruct the historical foundations of society and encourage you to find your identity within yourself. In fact, there are many people who would argue that the family is an oppressive patriarchal structure that needs to be destroyed that the traditional family needs to be replaced with other concepts. There are writers, philosophers who would say that family limits you in finding your identity because family places boundaries and parameters. Of course, from a Christian standpoint, we know that the responsibility of family is to place boundaries and parameters, that not everything you want to do, not everything that you want to indulge is a wise thing. And much of the society today has pushed the church out, marginalized the church, certainly pushed truth out of the public square to a large extent, because many would say the church is an oppressive institution that needs to be deconstructed in order that people might be free to find themselves. There is this viewpoint in a lot of parts of the more radical part of society that any institution that has existed for some time period needs to be deconstructed. What always boggles my mind, though, is they don't seem to have a good idea about what they're going to reconstruct or replace it with. Just destroy what is, and somehow utopia will manifest And see, what we're doing as a culture is that we are encouraging individuals to be your own little God, not to submit to authority, not to learn from community, not to learn from family or from church or any other institution that's valuable, but to learn only from your intrinsic being. Now, this is not new. Every generation throughout history since the fall, at least to some extent, has had the thought that I'm my own little God, I'm in charge, I control, that I do this independently. But the scripture says, you think you are as wise as a God, but you're only a man. Now, if we go a little further in Jeremiah, it's talking about the Israelites and says, our fathers possessed nothing but false gods, worthless idols that did them no good. And it says, do men make their own gods? Yes, but they are not gods. 
And see, that's where we are as a society is we're encouraging people to make a God of what? Yourself. Encouraging it. You see, a healthy society discourages that. A healthy society helps you understand that you are a part of a greater community, that you must submit to authority, you must learn to work with one another, you must control yourself, have self-control, that not everything you want to do is a healthy thing. But we are abandoning many of the principles of a healthy society. And so what we're really doing is encouraging people to live in a radically selfish, self-focused way. And whether young people realize that or not, that is the influence that is all around them. And it's very strong. Very strong. Now then also what we're encouraging is what people are referring to as the therapeutic self. In Proverbs it says, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. See, what it's saying is do not affiliate with, don't partake of the actions of a selfish man because as he thinks, so is he. Do you realize that who you are is a function of everything you have thought up to this point? Your identity is a function of what you have thought about yourself, good or bad. And you see, those cumulative thoughts are very important. And here we are as a culture encouraging people to think first and foremost about themselves and that the ultimate good of life is your personal pleasure and your personal happiness. I mean, really, if we could say today, and people were honest, the mantra of society is the ultimate good of life is your personal pleasure and your personal happiness, which means you are a very self-focused person, a very selfish person, who thinks primarily about themselves. Now, for some reason this year, I have had an abundance of requests for premarital counseling and weddings. I think more than any time I've ever been here. And I enjoy generally doing premarital counseling I, because I like to avoid problems. I don't enjoy doing marriage counseling because I don't like to fix them. Those, those can be hard. But one of the things that I do in talking with these young couples in premarital counseling is I'll ask them, how selfish do you think you are? And most of the time their response is, well, somewhat selfish or fairly selfish. I've never had anybody say, no, I'm not selfish at all. They always are so like, yeah, I can be selfish. And I say to them, well, let me suggest that you are a whole lot more selfish than you realize. A whole lot more. And you're about to get married, and what, what getting married is going to do is give you a mirror that reflects upon yourself to show you how selfish you can be. It's true. There are a lot of great things about marriage, but there are also things that God uses in marriage to break you of your selfishness that you must deny yourself, yield, be concerned about somebody else more. Now, we live in a culture that says, if whatever relationship you're in doesn't give you happiness and pleasure, just move on to the next one. Well, there are gonna be times in every marriage where you're not gonna be filled with happiness and pleasure today. It's just part of it. 
there are gonna be some conflicts some of the time. Now, some of the time, if we're honest, some of those conflicts are just plain foolish because they arose out of something petty that if you look back upon it a few years later, you'll think, how could I have been such a selfish brat? But you were. But see, we live in a time where the culture is saying that the ultimate good is your pleasure, your happiness. And that's why we call it the therapeutic self. In other words, it's like you always are looking into yourself to find what makes me joyful and happy, what gives me pleasure. In fact, the, the idea is if you're gonna find your identity, your meaning in life, you must look within yourself. What are your desires? What are your greatest motives in your heart? And those are the things you are to explore that you will find your authentic, true identity from within yourself. Now, there's a great danger in that. From a Christian perspective, we know that if you look within yourself at your own heart, what you're going to see is what? A fallen person who can be very selfish, who has sinful desires, who can be lustful and greedy and can be untruthful and all kinds of things. So if you look inside yourself at those kinds of things and say, that's where I'm gonna find my identity, what you're going to do is indulge your sinful pleasures. And really, that's what the culture is encouraging. That's why the culture is opposed to any institution that says that's wrong. See, we live in a time where literally people call evil good and good evil. So if you stand for something that is true and say that this is wrong, you are called evil because you are suppressing the identity of that person. They want to enjoy this experience from within. Now, you see, at the root of that, root of this philosophy of you're gonna find your identity within yourself is a belief that human beings are basically good. See, there is a strong philosophical viewpoint in certainly in American culture and certainly in American institutions that human beings are basically good. What's wrong with the world is the systems and structures of society put in place by those in power. And if those without power could deconstruct and overthrow those with power, then they would be able to explore and experience their greatest pleasures. So it sort of works like this. If you're a young person, this has happened in every generation, by the way. If you're a young person, you look at the world and say, there's something wrong with the world. It must be the fault of these old people. What the young people need to do is what? Overthrow the old people. Throw them out. We'll take control. Then things will be wonderful. Because the old people are the ones who have authority and power and they're forcing us to live within certain confines that they say some things are morally wrong that we think are pleasurable or they inhibit me from enjoying my greatest pleasures. In fact, there have been philosophers, poets and others who have directly attacked the church as an oppressive regime primarily about the sexual area that the church has for centuries been repressive, oppressive regarding sexuality and therefore the church is evil and my desire to experience lots of different sexual activities, that's good. Of course, all of that 
disregards the understanding that God created us in his image, male and female. He's the one who created sex and created the idea that you and I would come together in marriage, that we would have union with one another and out of that create life. To me, it is astounding, just absolutely astounding that God planned it this way, that two would come together, be one, and would create life. I mean, in his infinite wisdom, he gave us this capacity. And there's something sacred and holy about a sexual relationship between husband and wife. God blesses that relationship. Everything outside of that arrangement that he has set up is a perversion brought about by the work of the enemy to destroy life and kill it. And we live in a society that is extremely sexually perverse. In fact, most of us have lived in it so long we are numb to it. We are accustomed to it. But if you were to take somebody, say, from five generations ago, maybe longer, let's say from 100 years ago, pick them up and put them in today's society, they'd be shocked. If you took somebody from 200 years ago in this country, pick them up from the colonial days, put them in this society, they would just be flabbergasted. But we're accustomed to it. And what's going on in the culture in which we live is there is this radical focus upon self that you find your identity within yourself and the primary part of yourself is your sexual self. It's interesting, in all the years that I've met people over the years, I've never had anybody come up to me and introduce themselves, start to describe their identity first and foremost by their sexual behavior. Never had that. But we live in a culture where many people today define themselves by their sexual behavior. It's a defining identity. And so where we are as a culture is this extreme self-focus, extreme focus upon you finding the utmost good in pleasure and primarily through your sexual experiences. Yet the scripture says that we are to live by the spirit and if we do so, we will not gratify the desires of the sin nature, that the acts of the sin nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, orgies, there are many other things in that list that I left out just to put that up there. But, but the emphasis is upon there are things that are of the sin nature that are primarily sexual perversion. And of course, sexual perversion has always existed in all cultures. At the time of these things are being written, there was a lot of uh, temple prostitution, things of that nature in the culture that still exists in some parts of the world. But the sin nature desires to express itself in sexual immorality. So if you're looking within yourself, you don't know Christ, you're trying to find your identity and your desires, these strong desires are sexual and they're all of different types and they're perverse in some way, the culture would say, that's where you'll find life. But what we know is that the demonic comes to kill, steal, and destroy, always putting temptation before a person, always doing so to trap them and then rob them of life. And so you experience, you explore 
sexual perversion in some form or another, it will rob you of life. You honor God in your sexual relationship, then he will bless that in a marital covenant. It'll be a healthy thing for you. But you see, we live in a culture, and this is why I think it's so extremely difficult for young people, where primarily they're encouraged at extremely young ages to find their identity in the sexual area. The scripture also says in Corinthians that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That is, that the, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When it says that the Lord for the body, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on a few verses later to say, shall I then take the members of Christ, that is the members of my body, and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now this is Paul writing to the Corinthians where there was a lot of prostitution going on there. Corinth is a seaport city where there would be a lot of prostitution going on because it's a place where there's a lot of commerce, people coming and going, things of that nature. What Paul says, though, rather, is flee sexual immorality. All other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And this is one thing that I have observed very clearly over the years, that there are different types of sins that will affect you, that can be a stronghold in you, but I believe the ones that have the most influence on affecting you are sexual sins. Because here's what happens. People harden their hearts quickly over their sexual sin. That is, to protect, hide your sexual sin, you will harden your heart. Some people, to protect and hide their sexual sin, become very angry people, very difficult people. And the further you go down that road, the harder your heart will become. I've seen this very clearly. People who were going through life, maybe purported to follow Christ, got involved in an adulterous relationship, and it's like you don't even know who they are. Their heart becomes so hard, so protective of the sexual sin. And this is why the scripture says that he who sins in other ways sins outside the body, but sexual sin is against your own body. It's against your own being. And it will infiltrate and affect your very soul. But God's blessing is upon the marital relationship that sex is an honorable, healthy, good thing in the context of God's design. And this is what the culture has abandoned. Encourage people to radically pursue your selfish desires, to radically pursue pleasure, and no matter what your sexual desires might be, to pursue those. Well, we know that not every desire of the human flesh, of the sin nature, is a good desire. And of course, when you think about, well, how did the culture get here? It is because of the philosophies of men and the choices of people and so forth, because of the rebellion of people, and, but a lot of it is because of the work of the demonic. Try always employing any method whatsoever to destroy life, to rob people of life, to kill. And so where we are as a culture is that we've created gods of our own being, of our own flesh, of our own desires, our sinful desires. We've made gods out of our sinful desires. Now, a lot of people will go down that path, the path of destruction, 
and never repent. The wise person avoids the path, and if they've been on the path of destruction, they repent and turn away. This is why I do have the hope, and there are lots of glimmers of hope going on this year, that there's revival in the country that will cause many, many young people to see the emptiness, the darkness of the path that the culture encourages, and they will turn to Christ, find hope, and find life. For you see, if you, wanted, if you want to know what the best identity is, it's you in relationship with Christ. Because God designed you. He has good things for you. He, in, he, give, he gave you gifts and talents. He gives you opportunities to employ those. What he does is bring your identity to a place of blossoming. Where you're fruitful in the kingdom of God. You'll find your best life, your best identity in walking with Christ, submitting to him, the Holy Spirit working through you, therein you'll find peace and joy, the things that matter eternally, the things that are good. But we live in a culture that is encouraging us to find life in our sin nature. You can't find it there. Let's pray. Lord, first I ask that you would forgive us of trying to find life apart from you. That you would give us hope in you and you alone. That any person in this room who's trying to find life in their sin nature would repent and turn away and ask for forgiveness now, this very moment. If that's you personally, that you would ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to come in your life and fill you with the Holy Spirit and change you and make you like him. For all of us, Lord, that we would know truth and stand in it and find our identity, our purpose, our meaning in life in you. And I pray this in Christ's name. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.